Once again, friends, this is just a great joy and a great time to be alive, to be uh, present, to listen to the Word of God, to listen to His truth in the middle or in our present time of the 21st century. In a time when there's darkness, there's political tension rising, there's chaos in our southern border, there's violence in our streets, there's, there's violence in our schools, there's violence in, in stores and whatever. It's a great time, as dark and bleak as it is, this is the time that God has ordained for His church to be alive, to his, for His church to be a beacon of light, to proclaim a message of hope, but to stand upon the truth of the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ for all men to hear, both young, both old, both um, of different ethnicities, different languages, di different tra traditions and backgrounds, all men should hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And amen for that. So I want to invite you, if you don't have a Bible or if you're on an electronic device, you know, please open up your Bible to the book of Colossians. And we're, we're right in, we took a step back. Um, we're going to conclude chapter 2 today of Colossians chapter 2. And we're going to focus on verses 9 through 15. Um, and if you need a Bible, right in front of your seat, there's some Bibles. So you please feel free to grab one and, and open it up to the book of Colossians. Um, and let's go ahead. We've, we've, been, we've been tracking with, um, with what false teachers are. Um, we talked about rituals and worship. And, and then, then last uh, Sunday, we aesthetics or legalist within the church. And today we want to take a moment to just take a step back and listen to how Paul would describe what is true Christianity. We live in a time, and it's very unique to our world, where many people ask, what is truth? Kind of like Pontius Pilate, when he stood before Jesus, and Jesus began to proclaim that truth, he goes, what is truth? Generations are asking, what is truth? What is relevant? What is real in a time where everything is just shifting and moving and, and it almost seems like history has become so obscured that we lost our way in the world. And so we're turning to all kinds of myths and, and beliefs. But I ask the question in your mind this morning, what is true Christianity? And this is where Paul is, is taking. Before we go into this section of the book of Colossians that now focuses on behavior. And that's why we called the next sermon series, Excuse You, <laughs> because it really engages church and culture. And, and, and it prescribes various ways for the church to conduct itself in the midst of churning and shifting and cultural trends. The church has given specific and implicit um, imperatives on how it should conduct itself in the darkness of our world. We are not called to flee. We are not called to run away. We are called to engage it. We are called to face the darkness. We are called to embrace it in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus Christ. And I hope that that would resonate with you we have 
a world that is in desperate need of people to vocalize what is true Christianity. Now, with all respect, not grandma's religion, not grandma's tradition, but true Christianity should be at the forefront of all of our lives. And what does this mean to us? So, this morning, let us read together from Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and on. And it goes something like this. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Verse 11. In him, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh, by circumcision of Christ. Verse 12. Having been buried with him, or with him in baptism, in which you were also raised through him, well, with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he said aside, nailing it to the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And I love this phrase that is Pauline theology in him. In him. Now, depending on the English translation that you're reading, something, I'm, I'm going to feed something to all the Bible nerds here and all the, 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 the Bible scholars here, right? Five times in this translation, you will read in, this, in these simple verses here, five times the phrase, in him, is used. And so, in him has a reoccurring motive, a reoccurring theme for us. In him, in him, in him, in him. Okay, folks, close your Bible, we're done. That's the sermon for today. In Him. And there's something so beautiful about being in Him that distinguishes all Christianity and all religions of the world, both Eastern and North American and Eastern Hemisphere and Western Hemisphere. Something beautiful that distinguishes true Christianity from all the religions in the world. That men, as we read in Colossians chapter 1, through, uh, by God, have been, what? Transferred from the kingdom of darkness and sin and condemnation and are transferred into the wonderful and beautiful kingdom of the beloved Son. And there's something so beautiful about that, that turns Drug addicts, that changes sinners, that changes prostitutes, that changes um, all the blackness and darkness you can name. And it transfers those individuals to a beautiful kingdom of the beloved son. So let's take a look at that because that is the, beauty, the beautiful um, uh, message of the good 
news of Jesus Christ. Now, let me pause just for a minute here because um, I noticed, and thank you. I want to thank you. If I ever say something or I use terminology and you're scratching your head and you're saying, hey, I didn't go to seminary. What does this mean? So to those of you who wrote those cards last week, thank you. And because you wrote those cards and you turned in, you got to know I'm paying attention to those. And I'm also praying for, 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 for myself and, and the leadership of this church. But a couple of things here. I just want to throw these out. Um, when you be coming from the podium or the pulpit and stuff, uh, here's some tools that I want to give you so that you can take it upon yourself. And if you don't have the ability to go to a seminary or anything, here's some simple tools that you could use to gain the knowledge that you need to gain the, 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 the cognitive growth that you would need to, to know more about God. So, for example, um, I know that we, on a Sunday morning, we, we provide uh, simple Bibles. But you know what? There's, there's additional Bibles you could use beyond the simple Bible. Um, there's study Bibles. So for one, one that I would highly recommend to you is the ESV study Bible. Great commentary. It's got charts and maps and, and, and a brief, a simple a concordance that you could use to navigate uh, original language. And so, you know, it, it's, 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 it's a great seal. It only costs about 50 bucks. And if you can't get it, talk to me and we'll do a fundraiser and help you acquire a study Bible. But I believe that, that we all should have, beyond the simple Bible, a good study Bible. Secondly, um, a lexicon or a simple Lexicon is just a fancy name to, to use the word. Okay, so, so, so you know, if, if you want a lexicon to feel more educated, go ahead, you know, that's fine. But a simple dictionary will help you unpack simple terminology, especially uh, Bible terminology. So it's stuff like um, you can... You can uh, the uh, Vines or Strong's or Elwell's, Elwell's uh, Evangelical Dictionary. Those are good resources for you to uh, study. Um, third, you want a basic commentary. Okay, so I have from basic commentaries to very sophisticated and exegetical commentary that would make your, your mind just spin. Uh, I'm not saying those. Get us a simple, simple dictionaries. Uh, Matthew Henry's. Uh, it's like $40, $45, and it's a whole volume, and, and it gives you good, good, good information there, um, very healthy perspective theologically, and so very um, evangelical, uh, that would be a good one, or Moody's Bible uh, uh, Commentary is a great, another one that's very good to give you and help you unpack simple Bible understanding and, and a little bit more deeper, right? Um, a good concordance is, is good. Now, concordance is just a little bit different than a dictionary because it gets into the Hebrew, it gets into Aramaic, and it gets into the Greek. Again, 40, 50 bucks, you could get yourself a good concordance, and it helps you take different words of the Bible to unpack their, their uh, meaning. Okay, so, so those are, that's what I want to give you. I just felt that compelled to, to, to share that with you. And then um, uh, two words that I used last week, right? I, I used the word Christology or, or the adjective form of Christological. Uh, what does that mean? Well, Christology simply means the study of the doctrine of Christ, the person and his work. So when we use that term, we're really referring to Jesus Christ. So it's important for us to, to assimilate these, these words uh, because all of Christianity centers on Christ. So we need to have a doctrine of who Jesus Christ is. So again, you know, most religions in the world would conclude Hinduism and, and Islam would at least conclude 
that Jesus Christ was a good and moral teacher. And that's important because that opens up a huge door of conversation on the doctrine of Christ, Christology. Okay, so that's, that's, that's a beautiful thing. And then last week, I cited from a book uh, by uh, Philkert Bryan and Kelly uh, Capic on Becoming Whole, Why the Opposite of Poverty Isn't the American Dream. Um, I'm reading that book. I'm chewing it up, tearing it apart. And it's a very biblical, Christ-centered approach to, to, to addressing the issues of the world on a global scale. It is very important for us to have an answer when we're out in the street and somebody asks, hey, do you have a nickel? Rather than saying no or feeling guilty and stuff, being able to engage the person and say, hey, yeah, you know, I, I might have a nickel, but I think you have more need than a nickel. Huh? So, you know, there, there, there's those types. Of, I use the, the word evangelical Gnosticism, right? So evangelical Gnosticism, let me unpack that for you, and then we're going to dive right into the text that, that we have here before us. Evangelical Gnosticism is just a new fancy way of saying it's the person who believes that God or Jesus Christ is involved in my spiritual life, but then all the other areas of my life are separated, and I turn to natural ways or, or human effort to address those situations in my life. Okay? That's what evangelical Gnosticism is. In short, it's the person that says, I will worship God on Sunday, but Monday through, through the next Saturday, uh, God is irrelevant in my life. For true Christianity... God is relevant in our lives 24, sevens, uh, 24 hours a day, 10 days a week, 365 days a year. It's when I'm camping, when I'm working, when I'm studying, when I'm involved in the grind of my life. Jesus, the triune God, is there with me, mano a mano. And so let's dive into the text of this morning, and consider uh, a few things that we need to, 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 to consider about the text we just read. And it's very important because, once again, we live in a postmodern Christian society. We live in a postmodern Christian society today. And now Christianity, we're not the country that once was founded and as more, uh, right, in the last three years, you've had more than 8 million immigrants now coming. Now, either you say they're invading or whatever it is, uh, um, um, I'm reformed, so God ordained these folks to be here. Oh, oh, sorry. Wrong, wrong, wrong church. <laughs> That's difficult, isn't it, friends? It's difficult. So without getting into politics and the, and, the, and, the, and the difficulty of that conversation, if God has allowed them to be here for whatever reason, the response of the church should be to witness and make disciples of those who are here. Because we don't know how long they're going to be here. But wouldn't it be very encouraging for us that when they do leave, they take the gospel with them? Can you imagine the powerful uh, evangelistic opportunity that we have? Now, it's true. Some people might come for whatever reasons. But 
But this is, this is our reality, and we should be involved in what is true. So when I say true Christianity, I'm talking about orthodox, right? What, what, what's, what's, what's sound, what is historical, what we have received from the time of Jesus to the 12 disciples to all of the disciples of the apostles. It goes back throughout history. And so, here's the first thing that we want to consider this morning about true Christianity and the text that we just read. Because again, there was false teachers. They were legalists. There were those who were trying to persuade. Either it was Eastern uh, religious influence that was trying to persuade the believers in Colossae, hey, you need to worship these gods or these angels. Or hey, you need to practice this form of religion. And some believe it was Judaism. Or, hey, you have to observe these celebrations and these, these feasts on the calendar. And to all of that, Paul say, if Christ is not supreme, all of that would be considered human tradition and the religion of man. And it's not true Christianity. So that, that's, that's the centrality of Jesus the preeminence of Christ and the supremacy of Christ upon not just the church in Colossae, but even us here in Clovis in the 21st century, that Christ, in all things, he would be supreme. And so, first thing, Christianity or true Christianity is only possible in Christ alone. Uh, I remember walking into church one day, and um, I thought this person was a lot more mature in, in their faith and their beliefs and their convictions. The, the dear lady, dear friend stopped in the hallway and she said, hey, pastor, isn't it great that all, all religions take, lead you to heaven? And I had one of those moments and I said, no. <laughs> and then we paused and then we talked. And, you know, and, and then we, we started to observe the words and the teachings of Jesus Christ. And, um, again, true Christianity here, I suggest, based on the text, based on verses 9 and 10, it's only possible. It's only a true, it only becomes true in Christ alone. Now, here's why. Look, look what, what um, let's take a look of those first two in hymns, but then um, at the end of verse 10, it describes to us what that in him is. So, for example, it says in verse 9, uh, For in him, the whole, not partial, not 99.95%, it's 100%. So, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. What does that mean? Ooh, that's a very theological question there, at which 30 minutes doesn't allow us time to unpack. But the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily form. We are Trinitarian. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That wholeness of deity the fullness of the deity, yet the mystery of the hypostatic union of Christ, that he was 100% man, he was 100% God, dwelled in Jesus Christ. 
huh, how's that for your theology this Sunday morning? <laughs> like, we need to have a class on the Trinity, right? But this is the beauty of the mystery and the faith that we have. Triune God. And so, we read, in him was the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. And you have been, here's the beautiful thing, and you have been, and you have been filled in him. Now that is going to blow my theology this morning. In Christ, you have the fullness of the deity, the whole fullness of this deity um, residing in Christ. But then now you are in Christ and you are filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Now, because of time, I will spare you <laughs> um, unpacking this. Here's what I, 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 in my time of study, so um, I did the hard work of going into commentaries and ex exegetical uh, uh, writings to kind of uh, see where is everyone uh, unpacking and how is uh, scholars understanding this whole concept of fullness. Well, okay, so we know Christ, he was 100% God, 100% man. We cannot separate the two. He, 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 he existed, the one didn't overtake the other, he was 100% each. And he lived and walked and he accomplished the work of God in both. So to say that God doesn't understand me is wrong. To say that God doesn't understand the pain, the, the anxiety, the depression, the emotions, the, the sicknesses, the struggles and pains of life would be an error. Because the writer of the book of Hebrews would say, we have a priest who can relate with us. Why? Because he dwelt amongst men. So he can sympathize. He can empathize with our struggles, our human emotions. But then, when it says, in him, you have been filled. What does that mean? Are we little gods? That would be an error. So what does it mean when we are filled in Christ? Well, here, here, here's what, what I summarize or I can synthesize what most of the scholarly work would, it says, in Christ you are complete. So if you are in Christ, you lack nothing. If you are in Christ, you lack nothing. Well, oh, I don't know, Pastor. I'm not married yet. I'm still waiting for my, you know, better half. Right? That, that same text of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Then why are we wanting humans? What is it that drives our desire for thirst and hunger and for accomplishment or, or for a sense of significance? Look what's happening in the world. People aren't happy with their gender. So they're trying to find significance and purpose and identity in being something they weren't biologically created to be. So it's anti-normal. It's anti uh, uh, of the designer, the great designer. And so, again, you, you begin to flush these out. And again, just... It, simply, when you get some time, if you just jump back to Colossians 2.8, it really just this whole verses 9 
through 15, just keep unpacking the whole thing there. Don't see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and again, not according to Christ. Mind you, Paul never said you can't have teaching. Some people would say, oh, why do you waste your time? You're like a Pharisee. You need to have some education. Paul never said don't do rituals and worship. Paul never said practice the spiritual disciplines in life that we need to develop. The, what Paul did say, they should be holding fast to Christ, who is the head of the church. So everything, my religious practice, my religious uh, um, disciplines are not done just in the flesh or for the sake of the flesh. They are done with the perspective of Jesus Christ in mind. And he's the reason why I pray. He's the reason why I fast. He's the reason why I study the Bible. He's the reason why I can pray for two or three hours in the night. He's the reason for my discipline. It is Christ. It is with Christ, and it is by Christ. And so this is important as we're unpacking uh, um, on this. Then again, when you understand the fullness of God, you have to go back to that beautiful Christological hymn in, in chapter 1, verses 15, but mainly, or namely, in verse 19, where it says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell who did the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in? Christ. Christ. Our faith is grounded and built on no other foundation than Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And so all justification, regeneration, sanctification, and yes, glorification are only possible in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Consider, consider for a minute, very, very quickly, what Paul was telling the believers in, in, in Rome. In um, uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 20, it says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? And so, for there is no distinction. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That's another theological word for you. Propitiation. What does that mean? Well, in short, it just simply means that God appeased the wrath and the condemnation and moved it away from us. Okay? And so the propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Christianity is a religion of faith. That's it. You and I weren't there 2,000 years ago. We receive this account that has been passed along to us from all time or since the, Jesus was here. So we weren't there, but we received this testimony that tells us that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And all we have to do 
is believe it. But pastor, there's no scientific or philosophical or physics, you know, uh, 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 way of all of this mathematically. Faith isn't that. The minute you explain faith, it ceases to be. For faith, it's not tangible. But it's, it's so certain that it, it, it's a conviction. And so, believers are complete at conversion. Believers are complete only in Christ. And again, all believers are complete. If you have felt incomplete, don't believe that lie. For in Jesus Christ, you are and have been given everything you need to live out your Christian walk. Secondly, secondly, true Christianity requires... Now, get a load with this. Core of evangelical Gnosticism at its core is what we would call the God of I. At the core of evangelical Gnosticism is the God of I. Who's the God of I? He's the God of Western naturalism. It's the me. It's the individualistic uh, a spirit of the Western world. It's all about me. Or as most of you would know Frank Sinatra, I did it my way, right? Or, or, or to the you Latinos that were El Chente, right? El Chente, uh, I am the king. Yo sigo siendo el rey. Right? And so, this is what Christian, so Christianity requires me putting off the flesh. Death of individualism and resurrection in the power, uh-huh, not mine, not my effort, not my religiousness, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know if you're a cessationist or a continuum, wherever you land in that theological thing, you can discuss that when you get to heaven. But here we know that the triune God is at work from the time of redemption to glorification to all eternity in the life of the believer. He will carry us through at every moment, at every second. And so, again, this word, putting off the flesh, let me tell you just basically what it means. It means strip it off. Like when you get home and you strip your clothes off your body, strip it off. Take it off. But notice it's not just the taking it off. Christianity is the religion that invites you to die to yourself. My friend, may I submit humbly to you that that is probably one of the most biggest struggles in church discipline. It's the I, the ego. You talk to that person who's, who's, who's in a, a, um, a sexual relationship outside of his marriage, and it's all about them. Hey, you don't understand, Pastor. I have needs. Right? That's just the flesh talking. Same thing with the, with the addict. 
It's the need that they, you don't understand my need. That, 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 that's the spirit of this age, right? So Christianity requires you to pull off, take it off, strip it out. But then it invites you to die. And let me tell you, the best way, the, the best person I heard talk about this was Luis Palau when I was over here in um, Orange County and I met him in person. And he said, just like the little seed, right? You're going to plant a seed in your garden. So I, know, I know all of you know what I'm talking about. You've all had to plant some kind of plant or fruit tree. You take that seed. What do you do? You bury it. What needs to happen to that seed for it to come to life? It needs to die. Most of us don't want to die to self. You don't understand. You're right. I don't understand. And it's the I that we haven't put to death. But not only do, are we supposed to strip off the flesh, are, are we supposed to die to our individualism? Notice, what else? I, I think people are angry at religion because they haven't died to themselves. But notice, Jesus didn't want to just leave you in the tomb. Jesus wants you to experience the power of resurrected life. Uh, uh, Ephesians 2, 11 and on talks about this new humanity. Where is that new humanity built on? On the cross and the death, the centrality of the gospel in regeneration and redemption. And so here uh, we could go into like Philippians chapter 3 where, where Paul says, I, want, I don't want just the knowledge. I want to know the power of the resurrected Christ in my life. That's what we should long for. Um, St. Augustine said, the Holy Spirit is the soul of the church. And I agree with that. The Holy Spirit is the soul of the church. He's on mission with the church until the glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, here you see how Paul just unpacks that, right? He says in verse 11, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Hey, I don't know if you've been circumcised or not, but that hurts. But notice here how Paul is unpacking what circumcision is. It's not something made, and you can rightly interpret this way biblically by saying, a circumcision without involving human hands. How do you like that? That's the circumcision of Christ. And so you study Old Testament texts and all the prophets that spoke to the, the, the rebellious house of Israel. And he says, you know what your problem is, people? You've been circumcised physically, but you haven't been circumcised in your hearts. Ooh, eesh, ouch. And so, and so, oops, sorry. Um, and so, you know, again, you can go into Old Testament traditions and Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6 talks about that. Um, again, uh, you know, this, this alludes, this, this whole concept of, 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 of circumcision uh, really is defined here for us in, in um, verse 13 of the same chapter. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ. How goes there? Hey, Pastor Rand, this sounds so repetitious. You sound like a soul, like a broken record. 
This is, but this is the text. And we are submitting to the, to the Lord to speak to us on this. And the last point there, again, the importance of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, in our sanctification, in our justification, and in our glorification. So through and through, my friends, the triune God is at work lives at every step. So when I confront sin, I am not only supposed to confront my sin by, by humanly disciplines and, and physical discipline, I am also supposed to confront my sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes, the Word of God is there. It's in my mind and it's in my heart, but it is the work of the Holy Spirit to illuminate and bring back to my mind the very Word of God in my present time of need. And so, <laughs> and so, the last thing that I'm going to say this morning, true Christianity, and this is, the, this is the heart of what true Christianity is, my friends, because it's not just about do's and don't do's. We do those in the power of the Spirit. We do those with the triune God at work in our lives. But listen, 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 how I would hope that you would take this to heart. True Christianity triumphs. Notice the work that the good news does through the redemptive work of Christ. He triumphed. We are victors. Uh, we were up, uh, Carl and I were up at this uh, conference up in San Diego, and they had this whole illustration of a boxing ring. Imagine if you were a boxer, and you were going to go to a fight, and you already knew the outcome. Oh, you could take on all those big giant names in the boxing thing, right? You wouldn't be afraid of jumping in that boxing because you were guaranteed triumph. Victory, right? But the process of the fight, nobody wants to, nobody wants to endure. Right? Try getting in the ring with somebody like Mike Tyson, and uh, I think I would, I would knock out just by him looking at me. <laughs> like, dude, that's it. I'm out, you know? But imagine having to spar with. It's painful. You get hit. You hit back. Right? And so, so again, but, but notice what the text tells us in verse 14 and 15. By canceling, notice this, my friends. By canceling the, if you this morning in your Christian walk are wrestling with guilt, that is not the voice of God in your heart and your mind. That is not the voice of the Holy Spirit. Because what? Look what Christian, it, it, it not only triumphed, it disarmed, it shamed the um, any power, authority by the, the redemptive work of God. So he canceled the record of debt that stood against us. And it not only stood against us, but it had legal demands. I was a liar. I have to pay the price. I cheated. I have to pay the price. There's a legal demand to my actions. But notice this. This he said aside. How did Jesus accomplish this? It tells you right there, nailing it to the cross. So when we observe and, 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 and consider the work of the cross, we just don't think that Jesus hung on the cross. We think about our sin, our shame, our condemnation, all the things that would convict us was hung on that cross. It tells us something very radical. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. And not these, these rulers and authorities aren't just human. It's the cosmic rulers and authorities. The tangible and the intangible. The visible and the invisible. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Wow. 
What did Jesus do on the cross of Calvary? He put to open shame our guilt, our condemnation, the power of sin, the power of death. Everything was put on full display. Praise God, man. I would be jumping up and shouting hallelujah and jumping with joy. Because what does this do, my friends? It's not about the religion It's about the redemptive work of Christ on the cross and what it accomplished for you and me. Thank you, brother. (laughs) One amen throughout this whole sermon. That is good. (laughs) I'll take it. But this work of Jesus, right? He canceled. He, he, He removed everything that would hinder us. He put it aside by nailing it to the cross. And notice this. He disarmed He disarmed. Sin shall not control your life. The power of darkness should not control your emotions, your fears, your will, your mind. Jesus disarmed it. He he just took away its complete power. And then when he disarmed these things, he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And I love this word, in him. How are we going to experience the victorious life of the believer in a very dark world? In him. Somebody said, and I'm going to close with this, and Caesar, if you want. I, I mean, I had so much. I wanted a sight. I wanted to sing to you this morning. I really love to impress you even though I don't have a voice. But if you have a chance in that blue hymn book on page 180, is a beautiful song that a guy by the name of John Wesley, when he, when he, when he uh, 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 gave his life to Christ and, and, and he experienced the power of the new birth, John Wesley wrote this song in the last chorus of his beautiful, of his beautiful song, And Can It Be? And Can It Be? But John Wesley closed off by saying, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus, all in him is mine. Remember this, friends, not only that you belong to God, but God belongs to you. Not only are you God's property, God is your property as well. And so, alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine, Bold, I approach the eternal throne and I claim the crown through Christ, my own. And the refrain, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? How can it be? I hope that would be your melody this morning as you remember what true Christianity is. It's not about the do's and don'ts and how rituals you practice and how many things you know. It's about Christ and Christ crucified and Him, Christ resurrected, and Christ coming back again for me one day in the future. And in the meantime, (laughs) in the meantime, amazing love, How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? How can it be? Well, he did it. A guy like me who's overweight, who has a a pacemaker, 
who's Mexican by descent, who probably didn't go to the right theological school, didn't have all the credentials, God would die for someone like me. And if he would die for somebody like Pablo Cachon, he would die for you too, and he did. You and I could stand before the throne of grace and receive that. Father, this morning, we thank you. And we bless you, Lord. And joy, Lord, what a joy. What a great joy and excitement and thanksgiving. It's just overflowing from the throne to us. That you would redeem us and die for us and, and make us new. Lord, what an honor. This is why we could raise hands. This is why we could stand to our feet. This is why we can join in the, in the chorus of your greatness and your love and your mercy and your, and, your, and your salvation and your holiness and your righteousness for us. And so, Lord, even to my friends that are listening online, would you, if they confessed with their mouth and believe in their hearts that you raised Jesus from the dead, would you impart into their lives the gift of salvation right now in the mighty, powerful name of Jesus Christ? We bless you. Now be with us, Lord, uh, this day and this week. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.